Well, good morning. Let's have another word of prayer before we look into this book. You can turn, if you would, in the meantime, to Acts chapter 3. And that's where we will be reading. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, day, waking us up to experience it. Uh, this opportunity to come together as believers and uh, look into the truth of your word. Uh, we pray that any of my own thoughts and efforts would be cast aside or forgotten, and that only the truth of the word uh, would be spoken and certainly would be the only thing that was remembered. Uh, so help us to open our hearts to the scripture, uh, that it would change us and uh, give us what we need to be more and more like you each day. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I remember last week Brian mentioned that his wife told him his PowerPoints were not colorful enough. (laughs) But I'm still just black and white bullet points. I thought about it. It crossed my mind. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. Um, let's just go ahead. We'll start reading. Uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, as we see things that are uh, particularly of interest. What I want us to consider as, if I had to pick one primary focus that I want us to be attentive to, it would just be that uh, Jesus, who is the Messiah, offers unfathomable grace and mercy. And we'll see that throughout the story. There's, there's, there's a number of lessons in here, many more than we could cover this morning. We'll look at a few, but primarily I want us to think of the, the unfathomable is a good word, but even you could say unfair depths of grace that God offers us through Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. So Acts chapter 3, let's read uh, the first six verses there. I need to hit the different button on this. I did. I did indeed. There we go. It wasn't that important. It's just what I already said. The first six verses is what we're going to read here. Now, Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. And a man who was lame from birth was carried there and placed every day at the temple gate called Beautiful, so he could beg from those entering the temple complex. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help, or he begged and asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. So this man uh, would come here near the entrance of the temple complex to beg. Um, He was lame from birth. And we see in Acts chapter 4 that he was at least 40 years old. So 40 years uh, from birth, 
unable to walk. Sitting outside of the temple complex begging. Now, this was probably an excellent place to beg, as many of the uh, religious Jews who wanted to be seen as pious were probably standing there. And so begging for money in, in a place where uh, people like the Pharisees who wanted to be noticed and admired was probably a good place to uh, beg. And when he sees uh, Peter and John, uh, it's not necessarily that he picked them out of the crowd and said, you, please, because we see uh, in verse four, Peter and John says, look at us, right? Put your attention on us. So he's calling out to the crowds as they walk by, begging for money. And Peter says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. And what Peter had was nothing of his own power. Peter had no special abilities or power or goodness, as he'll tell uh, the surrounding crowd in a moment. Uh, But what he had was uh, a power that was derived only from the virtue of who Christ was. And what makes this power, in addition to the fact that it was so miraculous in what it could do, uh, it is superior to silver and gold. Right? Think about this man, this lame man, why was he begging for money? Right? It's because of a greater problem that he had, right? And Peter, rather than, which he didn't even have the silver and gold to give him, but he had something better to give him. And, as believers, right, this, this, uh, um, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, at, at a minimum for salvation, is something that we have, and when we share and tell others about it, Unlike silver and gold and currency, we don't lose it, right? There's not a matter of of exchanging something. I'll have a little bit less. You can have a little bit. Uh, No, this was something that Peter had superior to silver and gold. And in giving it away, he didn't lose any of it. In fact, you might you may actually gain and grow in that virtue and, and power of Christ as we share and give it away. And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This name would have been uh, a hot topic in recent weeks and months uh, around uh, the Jews that would be here near the temple complex. This was the name that was inscribed above Jesus as he died on the cross. Peter now invoking that name, the very one that was uh, crucified, dying on the cross. And we'll hear more about uh, that as we read on. That name, that's the one that this power is derived from. And even this lame man, probably very well acquainted. It, I would imagine he had not been at the crucifixion uh, unless someone had carried him there. Um, but in, in John, there's there's multiple healings uh uh, of a blind man, of a lame man. And when they were asked, how did you get this healing? What happened to you? They said the name Jesus, a man named Jesus healed me. It was Jesus who healed me. And those healings took place all within within a mile, within a half mile probably of this location here outside of the temple complex. And so no doubt this man had heard the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The, the, the surrounding Jews, right? They had just denied and, and crucified this name. And now they see that name working 
not only through the person of Jesus, but now through his believers, to them, right, this man has now been killed and done away with, and his name is still having such power. And now the, the thought for us, which I already touched on there, uh, is to share that which we have with others, right? I know personally, uh, this is a, uh, to, to me something that I need to remember that, um, I often wish, and I find myself balancing this, the, that I had more to give people, right? I wish I had, if I had more money to spare or more things to spare, oh, I could be generous and give people this and that and the other thing. But we have now, each of us as believers, something far more valuable to give and to share. And we don't lose it when we share it. So that which we do have, we ought to share. And and certainly the Lord will bless some with material means more than others. But if we're waiting on that, we're missing the point of what it is that we have now in the Lord Jesus to share. So absolutely that which we have, we ought to share with those around us. Verse 7, then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up and at once his feet and ankles became strong. There's a couple quotes that I'll read today. And this was one of them that I thought was very well said. When God, by his word, urges us to rise and walk in the ways of his commandments, if we mix faith with that word, and rely on the power of the word, he will give us his spirit and take us by the hand, as it were, and lift us up. If we set ourselves to do what we can in dependence on the divine aid, God has promised by his grace to enable us to do what we cannot. And by faith in that promise, we receive a new nature. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. Right. And there's often this discussion, this uh, confusion, which is not um, a simple argument to be dismissed. Right. Uh, but this discussion on grace and faith and what part is whose and what I can say. That we should all agree on is that it is a grace to know of the grace offered, right? We, as believers, when we come to know the Lord Jesus, what happens is that we respond in faith to the offer of grace. But the very fact that we were made aware of the offer of grace is a grace of God, is it not? That we were born into a community that had the word of God, that we were given a situation that we could even hear of the offer of grace and respond in faith, as it says in Ephesians. He took him by the hand and he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. Verse 8. He jumped up, stood, and started to walk. And he entered the temple complex with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is an overwhelming recovery, right? Remember, this man had been lame, unable to walk for 40 years at least. Now, obviously, uh, being unable to walk for 40 years, you can imagine that his actual form was probably very withered and wasted away. So now, given the ability to stand up, there was very likely a visual change in his body, that it had to be changed before them, 
that it would have the faculties and the means to actually stand up and leap and walk. The brain. So I wanted to point this out a little bit more specifically. Not only was a physical, visible change made in this man, but walking is a very difficult skill. It takes babies a year or two to figure out how to do it. Right. And that's because the brain is making all of these connections and learning how to fire different muscles and move in a certain pattern. Right. If you're right handed, just think of throwing a ball with your left hand. Right. It's something that your brain just doesn't really know how to do or even brushing your teeth with the wrong hand. Right. Very difficult. So this man not only had a physical visible change, but his entire brain had to be rewired so that he could walk and leap and bound. This was an amazing recovery, not something that had just been bluffed recently, but the body and the brain itself. And not only is he weak, walking and leaping, he's praising God, right? He goes from the situation of begging for help to now he's praising God. And he, he seems to enter the temple with uh, Peter and John here and has a, a change in his attitude. And the people notice this. In verse 9, it says, All the people saw him walking and praising God. Now imagine if he had been healed and was very quiet and just walked along with Peter and John. A couple people might have been like, was that the, the lame man that was always here begging? It can't be. can't be the lame man. But he wasn't. He was praising God, leaping and praising God. Which also reminds me of, uh, as a believer, right? Do When we receive that salvation, is our life now something that stands out to people as saying, well, weren't, didn't they used to just be like, Everyone else, weren't they just like me? Are we quietly blending into the crowd or are we living a life that stands out and is noticeable? Verse 10, they recognize that it was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple complex. So they were filled with awe and astonishment as to what had happened to them or had happened to him. So why were they filled with awe and astonishment? Well, again, we'll we'll reiterate here. There was an undoubted lameness, right? 40 years, this man. That would have been a very long con to trick people, right? 40 years. Before Jesus had appeared, they had planned this. No, this man had been lame for 40 years. There was an unplanned encounter. Peter and John going up at a, a typical hour into the temple to pray. This was not something that was coordinated, And think about this as well. Peter is going to boldly do something in the name of the Lord Jesus, a name that very recently prior to this, he had denied. When people said, weren't you with Jesus? He said, nope, not me. Denying that name, hiding from it. He would not have planned a situation in which he would then boldly and dangerously profess it. This was an unplanned encounter. There was an unassuming healer. This was not some loud, uh, uh, pretending to be pious leader, uh, trying to gain favor and fame in a situation. And there was an undeniable healing. We talked about that, right? That there was probably a visual change. There was amazing uh, competency in this man's movement, able to leap and bound. And an unaccepted name, right? The name of Jesus, who had just been crucified and killed and denied and put on the cross. This was done in his name, And the people were amazed at this. 
Verse 11, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, greatly amazed, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? Now, we just talked a little bit about why this was amazing, right? These are awe-inspiring. But it should not have been something that baffled the people around, that had baffled the Jews, right? They were familiar with uh, miracles and the working of miracles. And this is something that, as Jewish people, instead of asking uh, how something like this was done, they should have known to credit true miracles to the Lord and no one else. And instead of asking, um, you know, what sort of power do these people have? That seems to be what he's addressing, as if this was done uh, by our own power or godliness. No, they should have immediately recognized a true miracle done by God. Why was this miracle done? That should be the question of the Jews, instead of an amazement that it was possible. But of course, now this miracle being done in the name of Jesus, the one they just denied and crucified, there were some cognitive dissonance here, right? How, how is this name functioning? No condition too severe for restoration through faith. So, again, because of this man's, the severity of his condition, right? The depths and seriousness of his lameness healed by faith in the name of the Lord Jesus. I, I saw um, one message on Acts 3, and it was titled, A Lame Excuse for a Sermon. Yeah, you'll get it later if you didn't yet. Uh, and that's true, absolutely, right? Peter's seeing this opportunity. He heals this man, and what happens? Everyone runs in astonishment. So, of course, all right, I'll give you uh, something to think about, he says. And he's going to go on and explain to the people around the depth and the seriousness of their crimes and their need. But he's going to also show the deeperness of the grace of God. And so this example of a, of a terribly severe from birth condition healed through faith. And now he'll go on to explain, uh, the severity of their own condition and their crimes. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life, or the prince of life, the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. So Jesus, in and around, performing miracles, uh, some believing, many denying, crucified, resurrected, ascended, but now people are seeing his name is still effectual to the faithful. 
And I, I heard one commentator call this the fatal paradox, killing the author of life, right? They chose to kill the one who gives and brings life and release to live a murderer, the one who takes life. And there are many today are repeating this fatal paradox. Um, two quotes here. Um, the, the Jews in the surrounding area are said to have killed the Savior, though neither Herod nor Pilate nor many, if any, of those who nailed him to the cross were present. But it was done for their sakes and at their desires and by their means. And it is here charged to them as if it were done by them. So that is the condition of much of the world today, right? Um, this fatal paradox is being repeated every day in the lives of millions. The crowds who yell, not this man, but Barabbas, were less guilty and less mad than those who today cry, not Jesus, but worldly wealth or fleeting bodily delights or gratified ambition. Those of, uh, of the world who choose to pursue uh, death, right? Those things that deny the author and the source and the prince of life continue on making this choice. And that, that guilt of the crucifixion and the, the death of Christ applied. Verse 16, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. The name of Jesus was not an incantation. It was not a formula. It was not some special word in and of itself. I believe in this verse we see the faith of the one working the miracle and the faith of the one receiving. The, the, the language here is a little uh, difficult to decipher, right? Well, let's read it one more time. Uh, By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. There are lots of suggestions as to what that verse is saying. I believe, and you can dig into it and correct me. I believe that when it says, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong. We see the faith of Peter, the faith of the one working this miracle. By faith in the name that this name can work, uh, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So that the faith, now I believe we're talking about the lame man, the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. The faith of the worker and the faith of the receiver. Not a magical word, but again, a credit to the person behind the name, to the Lord Jesus uh, as Messiah of these people, denied and crucified, but proving through his life, death, resurrection, and miracles performed after his death, who he was. Verse 17, and now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders did. Now, this verse was uh, taught me a lot um, because my initial 
feeling on ignorance is that it's no excuse, right? Which is a very hypocritical, self-righteous thing to think. Um, but we, uh, at least I sort of had that reaction, like, no, it doesn't matter if they were ignorant. They, they should have known better, right? That kind of feeling is what I had. But what will come in the next few verses is uh, he doesn't let them off the hook as to their guilt and to their sin. But what he's going to be getting at or directing them to is the superiority of the grace that God offers, right? And the the best response to this is just the fact that um, right, the Lord Jesus himself would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? In ignorance, um, offering forgiveness. Now this... Um, and I'll read another quote here. This verse is a remarkable instance of tenderness in appealing to sinners. It would have been easy to have reproached them for their enormous crimes, but that was not the way to reach the heart. He had indeed stated and proved their wickedness. The object now was to bring them to repentance for it. And this was to be done by tenderness, kindness, and love. People are melted to contrition, not by reproaches, but by love. So he first begins now to explain, right? He's already explained their sin, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, glorified Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You killed the Holy One. You killed the Righteous One. You killed the Prince of Life. And here's some evidence as to him being the prince of life and who he said he was and the healing that was done to this lame man. The conviction, the truth, the reality of their sin, the depth and seriousness of it has been laid out. And now Peter begins a tender plea, a sermon now of hope and encouragement. I know you acted in ignorance. And again, back to us now as believers in sharing, right? Often, at least speaking for myself, when people are resistant to the gospel, I want to focus on their sin and their need for it. Why aren't you getting this? Like, do you not understand the depths of depravity and the need of the human condition? But we ought never to let the seriousness of sin and the depravity of mankind ever uh, outweigh the, the depth and the seriousness of grace, right? So, although we can be absolutely truthful with people and uh, share what the Word of God says about their sin and their need and their condition, we need to make sure we are including the overwhelming offer of grace that the Lord Jesus has. And that can be done in tenderness as Peter gives an example of here. Verse 18. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. The ignorant actions fulfilled the prophecies. Their ignorant actions fulfilled 
the prophecies. Joseph, in the Old Testament, Genesis 50, right, sold into slavery, went through a lot of difficult times, ended up rising as a ruler, coming into some power. His brothers, unknowingly then needing his assistance, finally realizing who he is. Joseph's father dies, and the brothers are now afraid. He's going to be angry with us now that our father's gone, right? He's going to be full of wrath towards us. He's going to, for the evil things that we did against him. And they go to Joseph and they try to get ahead of it, right? And what does Joseph say? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The same sort of situation here, right? Their ignorance fulfilled the prophecy. It didn't catch God off guard. It was his plan. He knew the outcome. And in this case, the predicted sufferings and death of Christ were for the remission of sins, right? There's there's a number of prophecies we could look to, but when I think of the suffering of the Savior, I always think of um, Isaiah, right? That that suffering servant uh, who would come and, and be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and so on and so forth. And so in light of this, because that their ignorance fulfilled the prophecies, we now see the, the sort of pinnacle of this uh, message, the hope that is now offered to these people in verse 19. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Uh, some translations chop these verses up a little differently, but this is what I have for 19. Uh, that your sins may be wiped out that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let's go ahead and read 19 and 20 together, actually. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as Messiah. So, of course, we all know the phrase, or we probably have heard it. When you see a therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. So, therefore repent. Well, what is he looking back to from his previous words? What is he talking about? And I would offer three things. Because of the terrible sin that they committed, there was something to repent for, right? The, the sin of denying the holy and righteous one and, and killing the prince of life. Because of that terrible sin. But also, because of that those prophecies predicting the suffering and death of the Savior for the remission of sins, right? There was something to, there was hope in repentance, right? Because God, through him, is willing to show mercy. This is Peter's, um, the pinnacle, the, the apex of what he's trying to say here. That repentance, you, you need to repent for what you have done, and there is purpose in repenting. There is hope and there is reward in repentance. Seasons of refreshing. Again, there's a lot of suggested interpretations for what seasons of refreshing are. And I would suggest that it is chiefly the presence of the Lord Jesus, the, pres the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I would say that 
is from the second part of this verse. Or the start, depending on what translation you have. But the phrase that he may send Jesus. Now, when I first saw that, I thought Jesus was already sent. So, what is this phrase talking about? That he may send Jesus. And again, this is another great one. Feel free to correct me. This is how I understand here. This wouldn't refer to his first coming. Because the Jews, those hearing, if they had been convicted of their terrible guilt in crucifying him, would be horrified if that's what was being talked about, right? He already came and went. He came, was crucified. Did we miss our chance? I don't think it's talking about his ultimate second coming, right? Because now in their current situation, they're guilty and deserving of vengeance, For the Lord to come back in in the the final and fullness of his glory would be a terrifying thing in their current plight. So, that the Lord would send Jesus, right? His bodily form has now ascended, but his person and his presence and his spirit is being offered to those who would turn and repent. A present season of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord who has been appointed to you as Messiah. Verse 21. Heaven must welcome him or receive him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. The Jews had heard from the law that the Christ or the Messiah was to remain forever. So many of them may well have dismissed Jesus uh, at his crucifixion. He died. He was not the Messiah. End of story. But Peter is now saying um, the fact that the Messiah would remain forever is not at all interrupted by the fact that heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things. Now, what we can say for certain um, about the restoration of all things is that it seems like it hasn't come yet. Especially, this is a very current uh, time appropriate looking at the situation of our world, right? Um Humanity at large is currently swimming, drowning, you pick your own phrase, in the patient grace of God, right? Often that question, why does God allow evil, right? Why is there so much evil in the world? The answer is because God is patient. Man, if he wiped out evil right now, right? And where do you, where do you, you have, to have to choose where, how much evil should he wipe out? Are you going to pick which sins you want him to wipe out or do you want him to wipe out mean thoughts, right? We are in the patience of God right now, but the time is coming for a restoration of all things. And the two thoughts I take from that, that of this, this restoration of all things, is absolutely the beauty of the condition that will be, right? There's so many, there always have been, but especially it seems in the past months and years, Terrible things going on in the world, right? People standing up for one cause and people not liking the way they do it. And 
often we find ourselves picking aside, but the point is all of it is going to be restored and fixed and perfect, right? It's not just the justice we want, like, oh, I wish these people would stop doing this or I wish these people would stop doing this. The restoration is not us getting that wish fulfilled. It's our own hearts and minds being changed. It's the situation being changed. It's everything being restored and made perfect. All things, all will be well. The condition. But also, the glorious hope of the king. There's been a few references here, right? Uh, What you did in ignorance fulfilled the prophecies, right? That none of this surprised him. None of this surprised God. The king is sovereign. The king knows. The king has a plan. He's in perfect and absolute control. And even though sometimes we can't fathom what the restoration of all things look like and we don't know when that time might be, and there's lots of things we don't know, we can trust in the person and the king that his restoration will be perfect, it will be in the right time, and it's all within his knowledge, right? It's not a surprise to him, and there is no uh, uh, worry left if our comfort and our hope and our future rests in Christ the King. Verse 22. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him in everything he will say to you. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Moses was the man to the Jews, right? His word was absolute and final. Anything that Moses said, that's the end of it. Moses was the man. And so Peter now references, um, Moses said that the Lord was going to raise up a prophet like him from among your brothers. Now, there's lots of ways that God was like Moses or, or Jesus was like Moses. But I think the most important one, uh, since he doesn't give us, uh, Peter doesn't go on to explain because of this, because of this, because of this. These are all the ways that Jesus and Moses were alike. The, the scripture doesn't press it any further than that, and neither should we in this context here. Um, but beyond the idea that Moses' authority was absolute. Now, the prophets between Moses and Christ may have been types or examples or shadows of that, but it was fulfilled, I believe, chiefly and finally in Christ. And so in refusing to hear this great prophet and putting him to death, Jesus, they had violated the express command of their own lawgiver, Moses. And their own lawgiver, unknowingly or in ignorance, God through Jesus. But it was still possible for them to obey because Jesus still lived in heaven. And all of the authority of Moses, therefore, made it a matter of obligation for them to still hear and obey him. And again, just a quote pulled from another commentator. It will be a solemn day when the sinner shall be called to render a reason why he has rejected the teachings and laws of the Son of God. 24 and uh, 25. 23, let's go back to 23. 
There's one more thought from 23. There's lots of thoughts from 23. One more I'd like to look at. Uh, uh, that they will be completely cut off from their people. So this comes from a, a Hebrew phrase that carries the idea of you will be responsible for that decision or that it will be required of you. So in the context, um, the most severe punishment that the Jews would probably imagine or think of was to be cut off from the people, re- removed from access to the tabernacle and the, the benefits of religion and being considered as a pagan, right? Um, the scriptures are abundantly clear uh, as this applies now to today. The scriptures are abundantly clear and they declare the truth that as sinners will not hear the Lord Jesus, they will be destroyed. And it becomes each uh, each individual to inquire with honesty whether he listens to the instructions of God and obeys his laws or whether he is rejecting them and following the devices and desires of his own heart. So. Those who don't listen to Christ being cut off from their own people doesn't quite strike, at least myself, as what does it mean to be cut off from my own people, right? So in the Jewish context, right, the the phrase really being those who deny Christ will be held accountable for it, will be cut off from their people. That was the most severe punishment they could think of, they could imagine. To 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 the world today, right, those who deny Christ will still receive the most severe punishment. And in a sense, it will be a cutting off from the people of Christ, from the people of God, ultimately. And so, yes, it will be a solemn day when they have to render a reason, a reason why they rejected the teachings of God. So now verses 24 and 25. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days. You are the sons of the prophets. Now, sons there, some of them, uh, it's not a literal necessary, necessarily bloodline descendants, but rather the idea of being sons was the idea of being pupils or disciples of the prophets, those who should have known what they were saying. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. Prophets from Samuel and those after him have announced these days, the days of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. All the world, all the families of the earth would be blessed by Abraham and his offspring. The offer of salvation, the offer of uh, by faith in Christ being brought in, right? The sons of Abraham, the sons of Christ being brought together, that offer being extended to all people through Abraham and the seed that was promised. Here he reminds the Jews uh, of right all the prophets pointing toward this man, um, the promise of Abraham pointing toward this man, the offer of salvation in this man to all people, not just to the descendants of Abraham. It doesn't matter if they come from the blood of Abraham or not. It is in Christ that those promises are offered.
And in verse 26, he says, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways, or from your sins. Did Christ turn all sinners? Well, Peter was here addressing many as sinners. So what has he accomplished? Christ did everything that was necessary to turn the Jews from their iniquities, except depriving them of the liberty of choice. He provided all. He fulfilled the prophecies. He taught. He corrected. He, he even taught and explained how he was fulfilling the prophecies. But he was denied and he was crucified. He provided all that was necessary for them to turn from their evil ways, except depriving them of the choice to not do it. And so Peter now offers to them, right, tries to explain the seriousness and the depth of their sin, uses their own prophets and the, the, the scriptures and the promises of the Old Testament to show the reality of Christ Jesus fulfilling the messianic prophecies brings them to that deep point of need and then says, but repent for the grace of God is deeper still, right? The one thought, if I had to pick one, is that Jesus, the true Messiah, offers unfathomable mercy and grace. Many lessons in the, in the chapter for us to remember Right to share what we have with others. Right, if God has uh, given us the grace to know of grace, and we've responded in faith, we now have an unlimited uh, prize that we can award uh, or that we can share, right, with people that we can tell people about. And we ought not to forget that. We ought to remember that we have uh, the best thing to give and an unlimited amount of it to give to share with others. And that as we do that, we ought to be truthful in tenderness, right? Absolutely, we, we must share the truth that humanity and its depravity and sin has separated itself from God irreparably. The best conversation I ever had um, in my reckoning with someone who, who was, the, this person was Catholic and they were very much the reliant on the Catholic promises and, and these things. And he kept explaining why he was safe and would go to heaven from this and that and the other thing. And I tried from scripture to explain to him that all have sinned and there's no one that reaches up to the glory of God and there's nothing we can do. And, and I tried and I tried. And finally he said, well, then what can we do? Yes, that's exactly what we're trying to get people to, right? And at that moment, that exact that little light bulb is the moment where we say, great, there's something much bigger than our sin, and it's the grace of God. Being truthful, right? Getting that they need to realize you need to bring people right to the edge of hopelessness and then give them the hope they need. Truthful and tender. And then uh, a glorious hope, uh, a terror to the unbeliever, but a glorious hope and promise um, to the believer, right? Those in Christ. That his sovereignty can provide us with perfect peace. That, that Jesus' suffering, being denied, the author of life being crucified was all 
in, in the plan. None of it surprised God, and it was all for the good and for the repentance of those who would turn from their iniquities. So let us uh, right, be... If we only had to hear things once, the Bible would be very small, right? So let us be encouraged at the depth and unfathomableness, unfathomability of the, the depth and grace of God and use that that we might be compelled to share that with others in truthfulness and tenderness and that we can rest in peace even in times like the, our world is experiencing now that we would not be afraid like the world that we would trust in his sovereignty and, and find perfect peace in that let's close in a word of prayer Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and for all the things that you put uh, to give us example upon example that we could um, understand more and more each time we read the same thing and each time we read something new that uh, builds upon and reiterates and deepens and enriches the truth of the word so that our minds can begin to um, peer into those depths of grace that you offer us. Um, We praise you so much for giving us access to the word of God, knowledge of what Christ offers us and putting us in a situation that we can even be aware of the grace that was offered to us. We thank you so much for that. And please, um, there are many opportunities for us to be your instruments, God. We know that surrounded by the world. Um, Often we pray for opportunities, but rather we should pray for boldness to use all the opportunities that we are given to be truthful and tender to the world and help us to Uh, even without words, that we would be examples to the world around us of peace and confidence in who the King is and in His sovereign plan that uh, by our faith we would be seen as different from what we were, leaping and praising, right? That we would stand out as uh, unusual in our confidence and trust and peace that we would again bring glory and honor to You, Lord. Help these things take root in our heart. Um, And again, anything spoken incorrectly would be forgotten and that the truth of your word uh, would take root only. Uh, Be with us as we travel to our homes today. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.